Welcome to Know Your Bible, a program presented by the Churches of Christ and devoted to helping you understand God's Word. The Bible is a book inspired by God that contains answers to your questions. The Bible reveals Jesus and explains His sacrifice, contains God's plan for the family, and timeless principles of parenting. Also has the truth about life and death. The Bible contains great financial advice and also answers questions of morality. Join us as we look for answers to your questions and help you know your Bible. Good morning. Welcome to Know Your Bible. We're glad you're back this week as we try to answer some of your questions about the Bible. We may have some first-time viewers just tuning by, and if so, you may wonder what this program is all about. It's about studying the Bible. It's about getting people to know their Bible. Uh, the best way we found to do that is just answer questions. Whatever somebody wonders about the Bible, uh, we'll try to find an answer to that, and that'll help them know their Bible a little bit better, and uh, that's what we do on this program. So we've got a phone number and a website down at the bottom of the screen every week, and it's you can use it any time. And uh, you just tell us what you'd like us to talk about on Know Your Bible. If you're interested in a specific verse or a specific doctrine or you wonder if something's really in the Bible, we'll try to find out for you. If you wonder about your life and family and uh, current events, something like that, and what the biblical principle is on those kind of things, we'll try to find that for you too. So we're just here to help you know your Bible and you need to tell us what you'd like us to discuss. Let me introduce my partner, Toby Levering, and uh, we'll get to answering some questions here. Good morning, Toby. Hi, Steve. Glad you're back and ready to go. And uh, we're going to give our viewers a question first, see if they know the answer. And the question is, what was Goliath's hometown? Of course, Goliath was the nine-foot-six giant that fought David, lost to David. Uh, what hometown was he from? Where did he go home to see Mama? Can you imagine what Mama <laughs> looked like? She was a big old girl. I'm sure he had some, <laughs> some height in the <laughs> jeans. Big, big old family there. <laughs> Anyhow, we'll give you the answer to that at the end of the program, see if you know that. But we're going to let uh, Toby start here with a polygamy question. Yes, a viewer asked the question, was Jacob a polygamist since he married both Leah and Rachel? Well, for those of you who aren't aware, polygamist is uh, someone who's uh, married to more than one person, as opposed to monogamy, which is when they're married to one person. And uh, there are many characters in the Bible uh, where the character married more than one person. So some people look at that and say, well, you know, that's in the Bible. It must be okay. Uh, so I guess by definition, Jacob was a polygamist. Polygamy was a practice adopted, as I've said, by many people in the Bible. Abraham and Jacob and David and Solomon. Solomon was way into polygamy for sure. Uh, and so there are lots of people who practice it. Uh, the question is, is because they practice it, uh, the authority given then to us for us to practice it? Uh, that's, a, that's a pretty big stretch because there's lots of, I mean, there's, Horrific stories within the Bible of, of rape and, and murder, and you know, if we just use the standard, well, it's in the Bible, and that makes it okay. Well, that violates every principle that's in the Bible. So, we got to use our thinking caps on this one. Uh, Jacob was a polygamist, but that doesn't mean that that's okay for us today. Uh, God's ideal plan from the beginning and has always been monogamy. We know that from Genesis chapter two, verse twenty-four, uh, where. Uh, uh, the scripture says that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife 
and they become one flesh. And Jesus, you know, Matthew chapter 24 said, hey, that, that's been the way it was since the beginning. So we clearly know that God's ideal is monogamy. Now, man's plan has deviated lots of ways from polygamy to divorce, to abuse and uh, adultery, all sorts of things where we thwarted, thwarted God's original design and plan. But God's original intention has always been uh, monogamy, and that's his ideal, and that's the way he wants it today. All righty, thank you, Toby. Uh, you're asked about the Trinity, and there's the way he states it. Uh, where does the Scripture say that God, Jesus, and the Spirit are one? I don't believe in the Trinity. Well, I understand this viewer's uh, problem. Uh, I understand it's hard to understand the Trinity. Uh, I don't understand how three can be one, but I live in a physical world where three people can't be one. In a spiritual world, it's possible. And I understand that's hard to understand. A lot of people uh, have discounted the doctrine of the Trinity because it's hard to understand. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, who was a pretty smart fellow, uh, that was one problem he had with the Bible. He said, this three-in-one stuff, he said, it, I, that's impossible. <laughs> well, he was so logical and so reasonable that he just couldn't make sense of that, so he discounted it. Uh, it takes faith to believe in a three-in-one being. But this viewer says, I don't believe in it, and I want to see exactly where the Bible says that the three are one. I believe that there are three beings, three centers of consciousness, whatever you want to call them, three divine beings uh, that have the divine essence. They are God. And I believe they are distinct from each other in certain ways. Now, the viewer wants to say, okay, show me the verse that says that. Well, there's some doctrines in the Bible that we can show a verse that says it. For instance, I believe God is love. I could show you the verse where John says, 1 John, God is love. But there are some doctrines which are not in a verse. They are a compilation. That's what doctrine means is teaching. They're a compilation of all the Bible says about something. And after we read all the Bible has to say about it, we can form a doctrine, our belief. So the doctrine of the Trinity, there's no verse that says there is a Trinity, three beings equal one. But if we read the Bible and the teachings of it, that's the inevitable conclusion. Let me just do this real quickly with you and show you a few scriptures and we'll just go through this quickly. Genesis 1.26 says, Then God, Elohim, which is plural, uh, plural, said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. So a plural being said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Okay. Matthew 28 saying, it says to baptize people in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So he lists these distinct beings. Jesus was called God. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. John 20 and 28, Thomas said to Jesus, My Lord and my God. He called Him God. 1 John 5, 20, Jesus Christ is the true God and the eternal life. The Holy Spirit is God. 
Peter said to Ananias and Sapphira, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. You've not lied to men, but to God. The Holy Spirit has the attributes of God. So when we read all of those things, what we come down to is there is a plural being, Elohim, God, that made man in their image and God the Father and God the Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are all called God. So we read all that and we say, well, even though we don't understand it perfectly, this is the Bible doctrine that there is a divine being made up of three distinct personalities that all have the attributes of deity. So that's why I believe it. That's what, where the doctrine comes from. It's not in one verse, but it's throughout the Bible. Yeah, as you say, the I mean, even the word itself is not found in Scripture. No. Trinity. If you do a word search, you won't find it. But just as you say, you know, you always find, you know, Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God. There's this idea of the three being one, and mm -hmm. so that's just a, a way that we kind of use to explain in our human way, mm -hmm. and you know, that sort of lacks. Yep. <laughs> yep. Uh, and let me add this: I don't, I don't think understanding, yeah, the Trinity, right. uh, perfectly is essential to salvation. Yeah. I mean, I don't understand it. Well, I believe yeah. it. I accept it on faith. But some people who say I don't believe it then come up with a doctrine that says Jesus isn't God. Right. Now, right. that's where you get that's in trouble get because problem. Jesus said, uh, <clears throat> nobody comes to the Father except through me. Right. I am God. Right. Uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So even if you don't understand that doctrine completely, and I'm sure a farmer in the fourth century didn't understand the doctrine <laughs> of the Trinity, but he knew Jesus was God. Exactly. Okay. Yep. All right, your turn. Toby. All right. Viewer wants to know, what do you say to God in order to be saved? Well, I'm going to answer this question first off by saying I don't. I don't think there's an exact formula, a precise wording that has to be followed 100 percent, and that's not spelled out in Scripture at all. Uh, but the, the idea of of saying something to profess your belief that Jesus is Lord, to desire to take on His Lordship in your life, and to to yield your heart in full obedience to Him, that, that is definitely a scriptural idea. But if you're looking for an exact pattern or, or number of words to say, I want to say there's not something that, that, that has been given us to say exactly this and you'll be saved. That said, profession is part of faith. Um, I think the closest verse I found is Romans chapter 10, uh, verses 9 and 10, which we'll look on the screen together. Uh, and there Paul writes, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the, your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. So, uh, you know, the, the idea of just believing, you know, sometimes we ask a question before a person chooses to put on Christ in baptism, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? And they'll simply say, yes. Uh, that's their profession. Sometimes I'll say, would you tell me and these witnesses what you believe about Jesus? And they'll say, he's the Son of God and he's the Lord, and something along those lines. And, and that's the idea, that the mouth confesses what the heart believes. And this is what Jesus said. He said, the mouth speaks from the abundance of the heart. So our profession is something that's important, not just to start our faith, but 
in our journey of faith. We go along as we go through our daily lives with our family, our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors, uh, sharing the good news of Christ with what he's done for us and uh, how he can <coughs> impact their lives as well. So I think that's the key. If you want to say Jesus is, <coughs> is Lord, that's fine, but certainly not um, an exact formula. And, and that's not the end of it. I mean, Jesus requires belief and faith and baptism and walking faithfully as well. So hope that helps. And all right. Next question. Thank you, Toby. Actually, I want to not answer okay. a question. I want to take oh, yeah. just a moment and promote a good way to study the Bible so that you can answer your own questions about the Bible. We try to answer as many as we can in 30 minutes, but uh, we could stay busy for a millennium and never get all the questions in the Bible answered. So we want folks to know your Bible and study it yourself. We found a good way to do that is offer you some free Bible study materials, let you have them uh, free of charge. We'll send them to you in the mail, and you can sit down and take as long or as, uh, work as quickly as you want uh, to work through these lessons. You see eight of them on the screen right now. Uh, good basic Bible lessons uh, give you a good overview of your Bible, help you form a regular habit of Bible study, because the way we do it is we send you one at a time, and you sit down, read the lesson, and read the Bible part it tells you to, and answer a few questions, and then send it back to us. And we pay the postage for that. We'll grade it and then send it back with lesson number two, and you can keep right on studying. It gives you a little accountability, and we found it to work real well. You see the first two lessons on the screen there are the Old Testament and the New Testament. It starts real basic. It gives you the uh, understanding of the two parts of the Bible that you'll need to know to understand the rest of it. Great way to study the Bible. Absolutely free of charge. All you got to do is call that number or log on. We'll get it started for you, and we've had thousands of people over the years uh, tell us they learned a lot about the Bible with Know Your Bible study materials. So give us a call today. All right, viewer wants to know, is it wrong to have images of God in our home, uh, such as pictures of Him? Well, a lot of people have pictures of, you walk in the room and you say, well, that's Jesus and uh, that kind of thing. Uh, it isn't a picture of Him because nobody knows what He looked like. Uh, pictures of God, of course, are impossible because He was He is spirit. Um, the people portray Him in many different ways, an old man with a long flowing beard and uh, lots of different ways, but we don't know what God looks like because He's a spirit. Uh, the Old Testament does say it's wrong to picture God. It's wrong to try to make an image of Him. And the reason for that was like when the Israelites made a golden calf. Uh, they couldn't see God, so they wanted something that they could say, okay, that's God, and He's with us, and He's right here. Well, the problem with that is it limits God. Uh, God is so much more transcendent, so much bigger than any picture we might have of Him that it diminishes God and lessens Him and limits Him if we try to put Him in a golden calf or a 600-foot golden statue or whatever we try to picture him as, it's not even close to who God is. So God said, don't try to do that. Don't try to picture me. Just know that I am bigger than anything you can imagine. So that's why the people that made the golden calf got in trouble. Now, some people today fear that an artistic concept, a picture of Jesus walking on the water or a picture of Jesus hanging on the cross or something, is equivalent to that of trying to picture God. And I will say if it bothers your conscience and you think that, then don't have pictures uh, around of that. But to me it's more a matter of the heart. If uh, the picture or the artifact or whatever you have up uh, has 
some power, you think, or, or you almost worship it, then I think you've gone too far. I think there's something wrong there. Uh, no picture or artifact or anything is worth our worship or uh, being treated as special or sacred. But if having a picture of Jesus at the front of the boat calming the storm uh, on the water, a famous picture, a painting of Him, uh, if that reminds you of His power when you walk past and look at it, uh, if having a picture of Him in the garden praying reminds you of His suffering, if the picture that somebody painted with Him holding a little lamb, if that makes you think, well, He cares for me, if it gives you that kind of remembrance, then it may be an all right thing. Uh, I don't think having an image uh, is breaking one of the old Ten Commandments, uh, but I think we need to be careful that we don't turn something into a, an item of worship that's just a man's concept of something. So if, that's, that's my feeling on it. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. What I find interesting is that you know Jesus often spoke using very picturesque speech mm -hmm. and saying using images to convey who he was. He's mm -hmm. the good shepherd. He's he's the lamb, and and those kind of things put a picture in our minds that help us understand a concept. And so exactly what you're saying, when you see a picture, helps us kind of understand a little bit better and think mm -hmm. about it. if you're worshiping it, and get, you know, that's a whole different deal. But if it helps remind you of a truth, yep. I mean, that's a, that's a good thing. Yep. Yeah, a lot of people carry a little cross in their sure. pocket or a little card with a picture of a cross on mm -hmm. it. Every time they touch it, they think of that. Uh, that's fine. But if you start to think it's magical and right. it will <laughs> ward off the devil or something, then right. you've probably gone too far. All right, Toby, let's give yes. you one. Okay. A uh, person asked the question, if a person who was baptized for the remission of sins keeps on sinning and confessing their sin, when will God finally say, enough is enough? <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate their uh, sincere sentiment. I, I think I understand where they're coming from. And I want to point you to a verse. It's not going to be on your screen, but it's in Second Peter chapter 3, uh, verses eight and nine. Here Peter says this. Now think about this is Peter writing here, okay? He denied Jesus three times. He made lots more mistakes than that. And Jesus was so patient with him. Now when we hear these words, this is what we get that picture of Peter on our minds. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with uh, the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And then he says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. So he gives us picture of, of a father being very patient and loving with us. It's like a, a father training his child. You know, the children have to be taught everything and parents have to learn to be very patient. Can't rush them, can't be harsh with them. Just have to be able to come down to their level and help get them to learn to ride the bike or learn to read. And, and God is just like that with us. In our behavior, He doesn't want us to do those things. He doesn't want us to, to sin. He doesn't want us to make those poor choices. And He's just right there as our Heavenly Father waiting for us, trying to bring us along, trying to see the error of our ways and actually begin to look like His Son. And I, that's the best picture I can give you. Uh, it, I believe if a person is sincerely penitent and walking in the light, I don't, God, I don't, truly don't believe in my heart. God will ever say enough is enough. Uh, now that's conditional on being sincerely repentant and actually walking in the light. It doesn't mean you be perfect. That means you're constantly walking toward the light of God, walking and doing the best you can.
Uh, so let's look at a verse together that is on your screen, 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. This is where we get that idea of walking in the light. If we claim to have fellowship with Him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. And the original word there means continued, continual action, ongoing, continual. Uh, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make Him out to be a liar and His word is not in us. So, we can't have fellowship with Christ and walk in darkness. That's heresy. Uh, you, you can't have that. That's double-minded living. We can't walk in the light uh, we can walk in the light, and as we do, the blood continually purifies us from all sin. That makes us holy. Um, but we can't claim we don't have sin at all, because that makes us a hypocrite. We must confess our sins, we must be penitent of them, and we must, we must ask God for forgiveness. And I think if we're penitent and sincere, God keeps on forgiving, because He understands we need lots of forgiveness. So, hope that helps. All right, thank you, Toby. Uh, let me take just a moment and invite our viewers to visit the Church of Christ near them. Churches of Christ keep this program on the air and help us teach the Bible to you. And uh, we like to mention a few each week that support this program. Today let's talk about the one in Burlington, Iowa. Uh, our partner up there in the Illinois, Iowa area. Uh, right on the Big Muddy, the Burlington Church of Christ. Down on South Roosevelt if you live in that town or anywhere close. I know you'd be warmly welcomed if you dropped in and visit the folks there. Roddy Tate is the minister there, great young man, and uh, does a lot of counseling in the community and some other things. So uh, you'd find a good group of folks that uh, think and study about the Bible a lot like we do on this program. And they'd welcome you to visit any time. Or if you just know somebody that uh, worships there, perhaps you might tell them, hey, I watch that program that you guys help uh, support. I saw you on the air the other day. Uh, that'll encourage them that uh, their support is doing some good. So uh, visit that Church of Christ or any Church of Christ near you, whatever your viewing area is. I bet you can find one close to you. Drop in sometime and tell them you watch the program. All right, viewers got a pretty simple question, but a very hard answer. Wants to know what's the meaning of 666? Now, I don't know where this viewer is coming from. Maybe they're like a whole lot of people that don't know what 666 means. They just know it's a bad number. Uh, there's something scary about it. Uh, it kind of freaks people out. I used to have a phone number that ended in 666 or 942-2666. Uh, and when I told people what it was, I'd say it's 942-2666. And they'd look at me, some of them, like, oh man, that's bad luck. Uh, one time I was the driver's license, uh, no, the plate place, I was getting a license plate and I think the number that came up was 662 or something okay. and so I asked the clerk I said could I have 666 and man she looked at me like <laughs> <laughs> she was not in fact she finally told me she wouldn't give it to me she, that she was afraid of it and uh, told me she gave a guy one 666 one time and he had a wreck in the parking lot when he, <laughs> when he was leaving so so a lot of people are scared of it and don't know what it even means uh, it's a number in the book of Revelation, let's look at the verse, Revelation 13, 18. And that first sentence is important. It said, this calls for wisdom. Uh, Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. 
that number is 666. Okay, so that says there's this number that is a number of a man, which is the number of a beast, and you got to have a lot of wisdom to calculate it. Uh, I guess I don't have that much insight because I've never been able to calculate it, but there's a lot of people have tried to calculate it. Uh, people have said that, okay, what it means is the Greek alphabet, you just take alpha equals one and beta equals two and right on through, and you add up letters, and you can spell somebody's name, and if it adds up to 666, then you've got the guy. You know who the beast is. You know who the antichrist is. You know who the, the man is that's going to cause all the problems. Uh, some people do it that way. Some people take it more general and just say, well, seven is the number of perfection. So three sevens is ultimate perfection. Well, six is less than perfection. So three sixes is uh, the false trinity. It's it's the less than perfection. It's three times less than perfection. And so it just means somebody who's anti-God, uh, maybe the Antichrist, if you believe that's going to be one person. So anyhow, uh, nobody knows. People have calculated it to be Hitler and some of the popes and uh, Caesar Nero and <laughs> all of that. Believing what we do about the book of Revelation, uh, that it took place in the first and second century. It was a warning about the persecution by the Roman government. Uh, it doesn't matter a whole lot what 666 means, but that's where it comes from. That's why people worry about it. And some people that believe it's still to come are still trying to translate it and figure out which man it represents and who the who the bad guy is. So that's kind of a general overview of it. All right, Toby, we got time yeah. for another one or two here. Some maybe. people say the world is going to end soon. What does the Bible say? Well, the Bible does say the world is going to end, and I guess it is going to end soon because we're closer now to the end of the world than we have ever been, and that is true. Um, but the Bible does also say that no one knows that day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven. And I love that thought that here are the holy beings that God has created. They serve him. They do his bidding. Even they don't know the end. And, and you've got people who sell books and have a whole business predicting who, uh, uh, who and how and when the end of the world is going to come. Not even the angels know that. So uh, just know that it is going to come and we got to be prepared for it. And that's what Peter tells us in Second Peter chapter 3, verses 10 and 12, which we'll look at together. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it Everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destructions of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. So we are close, closer now than we've ever been. Do we know that's going to be? No. Coming to an end pretty quick. All right. Uh, no time for more questions, but we do have time to get our trivia question answered, so let's make sure we do that. I asked what was Goliath's hometown. Well, if you read First Samuel, the story of the big battle, it says Goliath of Gath. He was from the town of Gath, and 
It's unique, but uh, David ended up in the town of Gath a while later when he was being chased by Saul. So uh, he went to visit Saul's hometown and may have seen some of his big brothers there. Anyhow, that's where Goliath was from. Uh, we're out of time for questions, but we're glad you've been with us today, and we're going to invite you to be back next week. If you haven't signed up for that correspondence course yet and got to studying at home, today would be a good day to do that. Let us know you want that. We'll get it started for you. Uh, other than that, we'll be back with some more of your questions next week and try to answer as many as we can. We thank you for your good questions. We invite you back. Thank you, and have a good week. Know Your Bible has been presented by the Churches of Christ in your area. Churches of Christ are non-denominational, and each congregation is an independent group of Christians seeking to do God's will. Our goal is simple New Testament Christianity. We follow the Bible as our only guide. Contact us with any questions, and we encourage you to visit a Church of Christ near you.